Psalm 57. You can turn there in your copy of God's Word. And what a wonderful portion of God's Word that we have to look at this evening. And just to let you know where we're going, we'll look at the psalm together, and then we're going to have a time of prayer, which you see on the back of your outline, praying through a sort of preparation for spiritual battle and spiritual warfare through a number of different seasons of prayer and topics of prayer that I think will be a great encouragement and blessing uh, to all of us. Psalm 57, anchor your heart in God amidst your troubles. This is a meek Tom of David when he fled from Saul and David was hiding in a cave. Verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me, Selah. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and the tongue of a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. For the choir director set to Al Tashheth. Father, we come to your word and the study of your word. Help me as I preach that I would be clear that you would come upon me with divine power so that I would be faithful to the text and help all of us to submit ourselves under the authority of your word, that we would be helped, that we would be changed, and that we would behold Christ, our great rock and refuge and fortress. In Jesus' name, amen. You're probably aware of the story. It's been told probably many times from this pulpit, and it's in many books on church history, about the young Englishman by the name of Augustus Toplady. He wrote the hymn that we sang earlier, Rock of Ages. He was 15 years old when God saved him, and it was in North Somerset, England, when Toplady found himself caught in a very severe storm, a very severe thunderstorm. And the tradition has it that he penned, or maybe he was inspired to write the hymn, Rock of Ages, when he was finding shelter in a cleft 
of a rock, waiting for the storm to pass him by. He penned the words that we just sang, rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Those are great words. And every Christian can take those to heart and make those words his own and say, this Savior Jesus is my rock of ages. Can you say that tonight? You know, there are times when you and I, maybe, maybe like Augustus Toplady, are caught in storms of life. And it may not be a severe thunderstorm that you and I have no shelter over our heads. It might be any sort of storm, and it may come in different sizes and shapes and forms and intensities. I'm reminded of biblical example after biblical example. Noah had his own storm, literally, that he was going through. Jeremiah had his storms of opposition and persecution. Our Savior himself, when he was rejected by men and put upon the cross and scoffed even by those for whom he came to save, had his own storms that he went through. Think of Ignatius, an early church father, who was a friend of the man Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, the apostle. He was bishop of the city of Antioch, and Ignatius was fed to the lions in the Colosseum at Rome under Emperor Trajan in 117 AD. That's, that's a storm of life, to trust in the Lord amidst. Another church father by the name of Justin Martyr, he was a bold apologist and a proclaimer of the gospel, and he was so bold for the gospel, he wrote a defense for Christianity, and he addressed it and sent it to the pagan emperor himself to read. And in that treatise, Justin Martyr said to the emperor, you can kill us, but you cannot hurt us. And that was a man who had storms of life. He was, in fact, beheaded in the city of Rome in 167 AD. What about the saints in India? The saints in India, as the country is growing more and more and more radical Hindu, and they are burning churches, and they're burning the homes of Christians and pastors. They are going through storms of life. Or the saints in China who are worshiping underground so as to not be found by authorities and fined and imprisoned. Or what about the man and woman who's battling physical illness? The man and woman who has health infirmities or debilitating pain or, or there's unknown issues relating to one's health. Those are real storms of life. What about the person who has conflict and turmoil and pains when he puts the car in park and he goes inside his own home and he has interpersonal conflict with those who don't know Christ and they don't love Christ and they don't love his word. Those are storms. What about the faithful Christian who faces the onslaught of the unjust treatment or, or the defamation or the ridicule from the pro-abortion environment or the pro-LGBT community? All of these are real and legitimate storms of life that you or I may find ourselves in. And when we're going through those storms of life, Psalm 57 is a great place to go. 
It is a great place to go because in your troubles, Jesus is your secure and your sure refuge. He is the rock of ages that you can always go to. Now, David wrote Psalm 57 when he was running from King Saul, and we know of two occasions where David was hiding in a cave from the book of 1 Samuel. He wrote this song as a miktam. Remember last week, last week we talked about a miktam. The Hebrew word for that means something to be treasured, something to be preserved, something to be kept. Don't lose this. Almost like whatever you do, keep it safe and out in the open and easily accessible. He wrote this as a God-absorbed song. In, in the 11 verses, God is referenced 21 times, either by name or by pronoun. So this is a God-absorbed song, which is good for you and me, because in times of suffering, sometimes we can forget God. In times of suffering, sometimes we can forget the character of God. And this is really, really helpful. So Psalm 57 in your outline, it it models for us how to anchor your heart in God while going through troubles. And really, my my outline uh, could be imperatives. We ought to lament and then we ought to be thankful. But actually, it comes from the two genres of the kind of literature that it is. The first is a lament And the second is a thanksgiving. So look in your outline with me. Let's begin with number one, the lament. In the suffering times of life, we must learn from David and recognize what it is to lament. What is a lament? A lament is a prayer of sorrow for God to act. It is a prayer for God to act. Lamenting is the people of God praying while living in a world that is marred by sin. It expresses deep grief and regret or sorrow, perhaps. Oh, God, why is this going on? David is lamenting in these opening four verses, and notice how he begins in verse 1. There's a lot of couplets in this psalm, a lot of repetition, and he begins in verse 1 with a couplet. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me. It's urgent. It's emphatic. It's passionate. It's desperate. And it's a very simple plea to God. And here's why David begins with a simple prayer for God to be gracious. It's because he recognizes that all of God's actions and all of God's deliverances toward him all are undeserved and come from grace. My my trouble, my affliction... My trials, my hardship, in those moments, I need you, God, to be gracious to me. Because we know that all of God's interventions and all of his acts in blessings in our lives are displays of undeserved grace. What do we have that we have not received? Acts of grace. 
Be gracious. God, I need you to intervene, not because I deserve it, not because I'm righteous, not because I've done something good to merit this. Be gracious. Verse 1, for my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. The great image, the great picture of, of taking refuge in the shadow of God's wings is a picture of, of, of a man or woman who is, who is hiding in God just like a, a little baby chick would hide in the wings of a hen for protection and, and warmth and shelter and comfort. The main idea here is protection in God. I love how a related verse comes out in Psalm 91, verse 1, when the psalmist says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. We we can dwell in a protected, in a secure, in a safe place under the shadow of God's wings. David says, I am weak but I need protection in God. And maybe you can say that. Maybe you can say that today about a particular storm in your life or a trial in your life. I am weak, Lord. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. Hide me, O Lord, in the refuge of your wings. Verse 2, notice what he does in this lament. David says, I will cry to God most high. I think I know what David is doing. I think he's alluding back to Genesis 14. When when in Genesis 14, Abram, who himself was a wanderer and often on the go, Abram used this title for God, God Most High, and it's like David is bringing the same title to bear as he prays, just like Abraham did way back then. You are the God most high. You are the Lord of the nations. You are the God who is unrivaled in power. Verse 2, he says, you are the God who accomplishes all things for me, which is so cool. I love how the idea in Hebrew is actually quite simple. God, you always fulfill your perfect purpose for me. And why I love that is because when you're going through a trial in life, sometimes you think, did I just mess up the plan of God? Did did I do something wrong? Am I outside of God's will? Have I totally thwarted the plan of God? Have I just messed everything up? And David is saying in verse 2, God, I know that you will always fulfill your purpose for me. Always. And then he laments. Look at verse 3 and 4. I mean, notice what's going on in David's life here. I mean, boys and girls, you put yourself in the shoes of David right here. Verse 3, God will send from heaven and save me. God reproaches him who tramples upon me. 
He says in verse 4, my soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows and their tongue is a sharp sword. These guys are like lions. These guys trample upon me. These guys are breathing forth fire with their wicked and deceitful and arrogant words. They are plotting and planning for my life. Verse 6 even tells us they're preparing a net for David. I mean, could you imagine being in that situation? You're hiding in a cave because danger is about to get you. You're hiding for your life. You want to you stay alive and you're crying out to God. Do you see at the end of verse 3, David says, God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. And I think David was relying on the character of God. I think David was relying on God to deliver him, that God would, in fact, reveal his love and truth or his grace and truth. We can also say that, that God has brought deliverance. God has sent forth, in John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, full of loving kindness and truth. It's the exact same phrase that David says, I know, God, you're going to send your love and you're going to send your truth to help me. In the fullest way, Jesus is the one who is full of grace and full of truth, and he has come to help us. He has come to save us. He has come to redeem us. And we see that in John 1, 17. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth are realized through Jesus Christ. Before we leave this first heading, just real quick, here's David having trouble in a cave. David is in a cave and he's having trouble, back to Psalm 57. But you know what? There was another one. There was another one who was a son of David who also found himself in great trouble, which wound up in a cave. He was the Lord Jesus. It was a tomb. He was in a a tomb that was hewn out of rock. He died for sins. He was buried, but then he did not stay in that cave. He did not stay in that tomb, but he rose up triumphantly. And so you and I can say with David at the end of verse 3, how much more, God, you will send forth your grace and your truth, your love and your truth in Christ. We can always take refuge in God. We can always take refuge in our resurrected Lord. Look at verse 5 in your, in your, in your Bible, because verse 5 really is the refrain. It's the chorus. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. I find that to be convicting because often in trouble, I want to escape. But yet in David's trouble, he wanted to exalt the Lord. It's a very helpful lesson that we can learn. Charles Stanley tells the story of one occasion he was visiting a family and he was in their home and He was walking through their home with them and getting the tour, and he saw a picture on their wall, and the picture was of Daniel in the lion's den. And he tells the story about about how Daniel, in this picture, was on his knees, but his eyes were looking up toward God in heaven. But what was so striking to Charles Stanley is he said, when I saw that picture, it, it just hit me. 
Daniel wasn't looking at the lions. He was looking upward at God. And that's what we need to do. That's what David does. In the midst of the lions, in the midst of the storm, he finds refuge in God. He knows that God is sending his loving kindness and his truth, and he wants God to be exalted. He wants God to be exalted. May that be so for us as well, that even in times of difficulty, number one, we can lament and come to God in prayer. Number two, in your outline, we have to not only lament and leave it there, but number two, thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. So the question then is, so what do we do when the hard times come in life, when the storms come in life? I mean, even if your circumstances do not change, even if your troubles do not change, listen carefully, my attitude can change. Even though my environment, my circumstances, my troubles, my situation may not change, what if it intensifies, but my perspective, my attitude must change? I was reading on this, and I came across a a Christian who lived a couple generations past. He said, one of the saddest marks of a weak Christian is their instability. Instability, meaning their heart is not fixed upon Christ. Their heart is not established upon Christ. It's like they're ignorant of Scripture. They're ignorant of God, and they're focused on themselves, and they're focused on all of their troubles. And and the writer said, it is so sad to see men and women of God living lives of instability. What we're going to see here at the end is we ought to fix our heart on the character of God. We ought to fix our heart on God. We ought to establish, we ought to cement our hearts in God. We ought to go deep in our study of God so that you won't be moved by all the winds of trouble that come our way. So how do we do that? How do we do that in life? Your outline will help. Number one, we must be steadfast. And that's what David says in verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I have to be fixed. i got to be resolute. I've got to be firm. I want my heart to be cemented deeply on you, O Lord. My heart is steadfast. Not flittering to and fro different things but firmly anchored in God. Number two, look in your outline. We ought to be singing. How how do we respond like David? We must be steadfast. Number two, we must be singing, verse seven. Look at the couplet. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. I will lift my voice in song. Isn't that amazing that Christians, even going through trials, can be singing people? You know, Paul and Silas modeled that when they were in jail in Philippi. The saints model that in heaven when they reflect on their death and their sufferings and their persecution and yet how they're singing praises to the Lamb who was slain. We ought to be singing like David was 
to the Lord. Third, we ought to be awake. Look at verse 8. Awake, my glory. That means all of my being. Awake, my glory. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Christians need to stir ourselves up. when, When the sun rises, it's like David says, my heart is already praising the Lord. When, when the end of verse 8 says, I will awaken the dawn, I think of, I think of New Year's Eve when someone might say, I, I'm going to ring in the new year when the clock strikes 12 midnight. Well, here's David saying, I'm going to ring in every new day with God's praises. Before the sun comes up, I'm, my heart is going to be steadfast in praising the Lord and singing to him. Verse 9, not only do we, do we learn from David to be steadfast and singing and awake, and, but now we must be thankful. Verse 9, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I mean, aren't, aren't we to be people who just exude thankfulness? We ought to give thanks in every circumstance. This is the cure for grumbling. It's the cure for complaining. It's the cure for discontentment, thankfulness. And then verse 10, David continues, we must be mindful, verse 10, for your loving kindness is great to the heavens and your truth is to the clouds. David is deliberately drawing on the character of God as motivations to praise. We have every reason to praise God, his truth, his loving kindness, he is faithful. We just remember we're mindful of who God is as a motivation and an incentive for praise. Now, let's just pause right there. Shouldn't we do that as well? I mean, David had his storms of life, and here's David acknowledging that his heart is anchored in God and that all of his glory should be stirred up to praise God. Shouldn't we do that? With with a God who has eternally existed in this perfect loving relationship within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And then this one perfect God called you and foreknew you and set his love upon you and predestined you and chose you to be his own beloved child. And then in space and time, the Spirit of God effectually calls you unto himself when you hear the gospel of Christ. And the Spirit of God awakens you and regenerates you and gives you life. And then when you're you're regenerated and, and you see your sin and you see Christ and you put your faith in him, you're immediately justified. And then you're justified and you're adopted and you're brought into the family of God and and adopted as one of God's children and you're treated as such forever. And then you're promised sanctification that will go with you all through life and then glorification to come at the moment you die or the Lord comes back. Don't we have every reason to give thanks? Even amidst the storms of life. Christian, we have every reason to be thankful. If you're here today and Christ is not, your Savior. If you're not thankful, if your heart desire is not for God and to be steadfast in Him, then you need to come to Christ. You need to turn 
from your self-confidence and turn to him in repentance and faith and find eternal life only in him. And then verse 11, here's that refrain again. Be exalted above the heavens, O God. Let your glory be above all the earth. There's a a question, by the way, that we ought to ask. And it's this. David prayed twice. "Let, Let our God be exalted. Let God be exalted above the heavens. Can you and I exalt God higher? Can can we make him higher? Can, Can we exalt God higher? And the answer is yes and no. Intrinsically, no. You cannot make God higher because in his intrinsic character, he doesn't lack anything. He doesn't need our exaltation. He doesn't need our praises. He doesn't lack anything. We can't make him more exalted. But doxologically, yes, you can praise and exalt God higher as you are ascribing praise to him. You can do that. We can also exalt God internally in our own hearts in those times of fear, in those times of discouragement, in those times of worry, as we are exalting God in our own hearts and elevating him in the right and proper place. And fourth, we can exalt God evangelistically. His name can be lifted up and it ought to be lifted up Not intrinsic glory of God that is increased, not at all. It's the global glory of God that ought to be acknowledged and adored. That's what David wants. That's what we want. This is a great song. It's a great song to go to in the storms of life. You can come to this song and say, God, you are my rock my refuge, my fortress. You are my glory. My heart is steadfast in you, even in the storm of life. But we do go through many difficulties, don't we? And in your outline, as we draw this to a close, I want to give you an arsenal of awesome anchor points that I think you could have in the back of your mind, maybe put a little bookmark in your Bible, maybe highlight these places, but know these verses well. Not if the trials and storms come, but when they come. And like David, when the suffering comes for the name of Christ as well. And if you want to follow with me, I'm going to do a quick little jet tour through the six of these and follow with me. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, you probably know all these scriptures so well, but in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christian, rejoice. Rejoice and be glad. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Mark 10, let's go to another 
awesome anchor point that we can go to amidst persecution and opposition and suffering. Mark chapter 10, verses 29 and 30. These are astonishing verses. Mark 10, 29, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive, that's a promise, he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Skip down just to the last one. And just one more for the sake of time. Go to Revelation 2. Revelation chapter 2. This is hope that is given to the suffering church of Smyrna. And in Revelation 2, in verse 10, Jesus said to the believers, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. But be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. What what, what do all of these six battle safeguards, what are these scriptures all teaching from Matthew and Mark and Revelation and the others? They teach that Jesus is our hope. He is our anchor. He is our refuge that we can always go to in times of difficulty. I'll close with this. I I found this illustration to be helpful. Imagine a young two-year-old boy who goes to the zoo He goes to the zoo with his mom, and as they're walking through the zoo, they find themselves at the orangutan exhibit. And this young little two-year-old boy is right up to the glass, watching these mighty and these massive and these hairy creatures. And his nose is right up to the glass, and he's looking at these big orangutans. On one occasion, the father, the daddy, the big one, walks right up to the glass nose to nose with that little two-year-old boy. And then that orangutan begins beating on the glass, hitting the glass, and that little two-year-old boy is frightened. He's terrified. He is scared to his wit's end, and he jumps into the arms of his mother. And he says, I'm scared. I'm scared, Mom. And she says, as she holds that boy in her arms, look, Look at this big wall of thick glass right there. Do you see that? That little orangutan is not going to hurt you. He can't get to you. And then she put him down on the ground, and he went right back, and he put his nose against that glass again. Why? Because perspective is everything. Perspective is everything. We need that perspective. When all the storms of life are coming at us and we can be scared and we can be fearful and we can run in fear and worry, God says, you have no reason to fear. Jesus is the mighty rock of ages. Perspective really is everything. Look to him and look to him afresh even today. Amen.